Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, welcome everyone into the Determined Truth Podcast. We are still in our lecture series in which we're able to drop into Rob teaching his online class on the gospel. So this is a week four of this class. Rob, what kind of preview you want to give us about uh, tonight's class? Yeah, tonight's class is going to be a fun study for me. At least it's fun uh, looking at the stories of Jesus feeding the multitudes in Mark 6 and in Mark 8. Why did he feed the multitudes twice? Why did Mark tell us that he fed them twice? Why, why did Mark tell us about the, how many baskets he picked up? And what does, it all, what, does, what does it all mean? And how does it tie into the question of what is the gospel? And the answer to the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. And the feeding of the multitudes, the story, the end of the story, you know, kind of cut to the end of it is that all you need is Jesus. Awesome. Well, here we go. Let's learn about the gospel and being fed. This is our study is what is the gospel? And we've said the gospel is, and well, anybody, what's the answer? The gospel is... Jesus is Lord. There you go. Jesus is Lord. And we've mentioned several times now that sounds simple, sounds trite and simplistic, but that's so deep and so rich that we're going to spend the rest of our lives figuring out what that that really means. And so we ponder on that. He's Lord. I'm not. He's Lord. Caesar's not. He's Lord. Power's not. Money's not. Wealth is not. Education is not. Jesus is Lord. And we are called to submit everything to him. As we looked at last week, then take up our crosses and follow him. And so we're going to continue to expand upon that. So tonight's study is really kind of not quite related to the theme. And like, it's what's it doing there? Well, I like it. And it's a lot of fun for me. That's why I put it in. And I think you're going to have a lot of fun. But ultimately, if anything, I'd say what tonight's study is, is to say he's Lord and all we need is Jesus. If, if, if there's any tagline added to the end of today's presentation or tonight's presentation, it's all we need is Jesus. So that's how it relates to to there. And now let's segue to the study. We also, however, mentioned that in the middle of this, we want to kind of look at the gospel of Mark and the, and the four gospels and how do we understand them and how do we read them? And so what we need, want to note, if you have your Bibles open, is Mark 6. We're going to look at the feeding of the, four, of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. Mm-hmm. And we're going to ask, well, why are there two feeding? You know, why, why do you tell us two stories? We, we get it. Jesus can multiply bread and he can feed multitudes. You don't need to tell us the second time that he can do it. We already knew he could do it the first time. But note that uh, Mark begins, and doesn't really begin, but in Mark 6, verse 7 through verse 13, the disciples are sent out to minister to the people. And he says, you know, hey, when you go, don't bring a bag, don't bring a purse, whatever. And he sends them out. And then in verse 30, they returned to Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So there you go. He sent them out. They come back. Now, what you might want to note is that in the middle of all that is a story of John the Baptist being, he- being beheaded. Now, this is something that Mark does throughout the Gospel of Mark. And if you've been in our studies of the Gospel of Mark before, we've commented on this because it appears all over the Gospel. We call it sandwiching. And what we mean by sandwiching is, is that Mark will tell a story, the disciples are sent out, and then he'll interrupt that story with something else. John the Baptist is beheaded by Herod. And then he comes back to the original story and finishes it. The disciples reported to Jesus all that they did and said. Now that doesn't be like, oh, I think you're making something up, Rob. He does this all the time. So, and I'm not going to spend the, tonight proving that he does this all the time. You just have to trust me a little bit and we'll see many more examples. He sandwiches these stories. He intentionally begins a story, interrupts it with another story, and then comes back to the other story and finishes it off. And he does this all the time. 
In fact, we're actually not going to look at the middle of, of tonight's study, but in Mark chapter 6, he feeds 5,000. In Mark chapter 8, he feeds 4,000. There you go. That's what we call the bread of the sandwich. Mark 7 is going to be the meat or the peanut butter and jelly. And I don't know if we're in a car and in India you have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but we do here in America. All right, so bread, peanut butter and jelly, and another piece of bread. So the bread in Mark 6 is he sends the disciples out. And then the other loaf of bread is the disciples report to Jesus all that he didn't set. In the middle is Herod killing John the Baptist being beheaded. Now, what does that mean for the disciples being sent out? Well, probably what it means and what Mark does is that the story that's in the middle provides the key nugget to help you understand the story that's on the outside. So the story of the disciples being sent out, that's the story on the outside, is made clear by John the Baptist being beheaded. And what probably is, being, is going on is Jesus is saying, the cost of being sent out is losing your head. And of course, we know that makes sense because in a few more verses, right, after in chapter eight, he's going to say, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Now, what Jesus does next, okay, so he sends the disciples out, John the Baptist is beheaded. Now, note, John the Baptist is beheaded at a banquet that Herod throws for his birthday, and he offers a favor to his stepdaughter, and, so, and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist, and he, and he delivers it. And then the next thing that happens, the disciples come back, and then the next story is Jesus feeds the multitude. And so we might even ask, is Jesus feeding the 5,000 his own banquet? That's supposed to be a contrast to the banquet that Herod offered. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It seems that there's some, some clues in there that might make some sense. Does that make sense before we go any further? All right, so there's a little bit of our context. And now we're going to see verse 33 of Mark chapter uh, 6. And uh, we're going to read verses 33 through 43. So if somebody wants to read those. But many who saw them recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and look up to the heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them, among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, this passage actually raises lots of, lots of questions. And we want to raise those questions. But anybody seen anything that's like, okay, that's kind of odd. That's peculiar. What's going And some of you, if you know some of the answers, don't give them out just yet. Save the surprise for everybody else. What are some awkward, odd things there? Sitting in groups of hundreds and fifties. Ah, very good. Very good. And I think this is on the notes that I provided. 
But the reason for that actually is because one of the things that Mark is doing in telling the story is he's, and I'm, so I'm going to give you the answer for this one. I'm sorry, Tom, but is he's portraying Jesus as the new Moses. Moses fed the Israelites and Jesus is feeding the new Israelites. And so Numbers chapter 31, verse 14, we won't look it up right now, but Moses had the people sit in groups of 50 and 50s and hundreds, and then they were fed. And so that's what Mark's readers would have recognized. Oh, that's an allusion to Moses feeding the Israelites. So very good. Yeah, that is an odd thing, isn't it? Yeah. Somebody else? I thought it was interesting how they picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces and bread and fish in the end. Excellent. There's a couple questions there, right? What are those particular questions of like, okay, what's going on there? Well, there's 12 disciples and there's 12 baskets of all leftovers from all just right. five fish. Okay. So. so you're seeing something that might be there, right? You're seeing, okay, yeah. there looks like there's something more going on here. All right. Somebody else, any other questions or things you stand out? There's one that yeah. really strikes me, but it took me a long time to, to see it, by the way. It says 5,000 men. It doesn't say anything about women and children. Ah, very good. Very good, Sandy. I'll answer that one uh, now also. It's likely the Greek word actually could be translated as people. The Greek word could be. It's, an, it's a masculine word, but that's just the word and that means man or people is, is a masculine word. So we could translate this as 5,000 people, or we could translate this as 5,000 men. Now, I didn't look at the translations prior to this, and I don't recall for a long time ago when I did how, how the translations do it, but we suspect that it was customary and Mark was probably following the protocols that you only counted the men, which that just tells you about the culture, right? Women and children don't count. Uh, if that's the case, then he fed much more than that and figure if the average family has, you know, one or two or three or four kids, you know, you, you could be having 10, 12, 15,000 or more people there. Uh, we don't know the answer to that because there's just no way to figure it out in Greek because it could be translated as men, and you figure women and children are there also, or it could be translated as people, that, and it's inclusive of the women and children already. So very good. So anybody else? Um, right, every time I read it, it's uh, verse 37, when Jesus tells them, yes. you give them something. To there, eat. That's the one that puzzles me the most. And when I finally saw yeah. it, I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. What, why is that a good question, Leah? What's going on there? Well... <laughs> How would you feel if somebody told you to go, I can't even feed my three kids, let alone. Yeah, all right, yeah, true. But look at the text. There's something else in the text that makes that question really, really odd. But the answer is, hey, send that. We don't have any food. When they go find, hey, okay, how much food do you have? Jesus says, verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Like, uh, we got five and two fish, which by the way, is they're like, they're like miniature fish. This is a child's uh, lunch. This is a kid's lunch pail. This is enough food to feed a, to feed a 12-year-old. So where do you expect us to get the food? Jesus, we just told you to send them back to the, to the villages so they can get food. And then he's like, you give them something to eat. Now, here's the deal. That's got to be an important question, folks. That can't just be something added in. because right, So what we often focus on is the miraculous feeding of the multitudes. But that question, you give them something to eat, or that statement, you give them something to eat, is like, how in the world does he expect them to do this? Does he really expect, is it just one of those questions? Hey, I'll guess what, I know you can't do it. I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll do it. I got it. I got this one. 
maybe next time. Or does he really actually mean, no, you guys feed them. And I think we're going to find out the answer, but not until after we're done with chapter eight. The other question that was asked was, why did he make extra bread? All right. So Marla pointed out they picked up 12 baskets full of, and we're like, well, that's an awfully interesting number because we kind of think 12 is an important number in the Bible. So, but it begs the question, why was there extra? Did Jesus say, hey, Jesus, you can stop multiplying the bread now. We've fed everybody. No, just in case they want seconds, I'm going to make sure. You know, why does he make extra bread? And then why did Mark tell us that he made extra bread? Because the fact that Mark tells us is the reason why we're asking the question, why did he do it? And so it's one thing that he did it, but if Mark didn't tell us, we would never have known and we would never have asked the question. The fact that Mark tells us means Mark wants us to ask this question. We're going to go, why'd you do this? So he must want us to ask this question. Mark seems to be begging us to ask the question, why did he make extra bread? And the extra bread's just going to sour. It's not going to be any good in a couple of days. So here we go. Now, chapter seven, which we're not going to discuss tonight. Ask, yeah, please. Mark, is there any significance in the fact that they're broken pieces? They're uh, not whole, but they're broken. Well, I think there, so that's a, a great question. But the answer is probably this, and then I'll give you a, a, where we could try to speculate, and then I'm going to say, no, don't speculate there. In the Jewish world, bread's the staple food, and bread's sacred. It's a, it's a sacred entity, and so bread is never supposed to be cut. You never cut bread with a knife. You only break bread. That's probably your answer. Now, what we might want to do is, read into it some kind of allegorical meaning of like, oh, the broken bread reminds of Jesus who is broken for our, right? And I think that's going beyond the text. And so I would only say, hey, be careful when you do. And I was, if this was something that Mark wanted to point out, Mark would at some point clarify or elaborate on that or lead us there. The fact that the text isn't leading us there yeah, that's so an allegory is where you take something and make it mean something different that's not there in the text. You know, like a, a, a metaphor is not an allegory. A metaphor is like, I'm the bread of life. Okay, that means he's the source of, of sustenance. But broken bread refers to the Jesus dying. It's like, well, yeah, okay. But we just got to be careful with, the, with those kind of things because it, it can lead us down kind of funny paths. So unless the text wants us to ask that question, and helps us answer it, then we're probably best saying, yeah, let's not ask it. The questions of like, why did they make extra bread? How, it sounds, and I'm going to prove that it actually it is the, it's the case. So right now we're like, well, it's a question. I don't know the answer. Maybe we find the answer out. Maybe we don't. Maybe it's just a curious part of the text. Uh, let, let's move on. Chapter seven, note, it's all about food and yeast and bread. So clearly it's connected to the feeding of the multitudes, but we're not going to get to it tonight. So let's go to chapter eight and chapter eight. Now, by the way, he's crossed to the other side of the sea by now. And uh, his journeys across the sea is something that we'll point out later when we do a study of the gospel of Mark, because Mark's very intentional and in where Jesus is at and where he's here and when he's there. And he journeys across the sea three different times. And every time something significant happens, but we won't get into that. So the next feeding is of 4,000. And it's chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 10. Would somebody be willing to read those 10 verses for us? I can do it. Thank you. In those days, there was another large crowd with nothing to eat. 
So Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have already been here with me three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from a great distance. His disciples answered him, where can someone get enough bread in this desolate place to satisfy these people? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? They replied, seven. Then he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. After he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, he broke them and began giving them to the disciples to serve. So they served the crowd. They also had a few small fish. After giving thanks for these, he told them to serve these as well. Everyone ate and was satisfied, and they picked up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. There were about 4,000 who ate. Then he dismissed them. Immediately, he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Very good. Yeah, very good. Uh, before we talk about this passage, I want to interject. I forgot to mention something about the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. It says in verse 34 of Mark 6, 34, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mm -hmm. And I put this on your notes. That's actually a reference to the leaders of Israel. Uh, if you were in our Ezekiel study, you might remember, I, you probably don't, but Ezekiel 34, the prophet Ezekiel comes in and speaks judgment upon the people of, of Israel. And it describes them as shepherds who have failed to shepherd God's sheep. And so in Ezekiel 34, God says, I will be their shepherd. You guys messed up. I'll do it. So Jesus, so the statement of they were like sheep without a shepherd is significant because it portrays Jesus in the role of the shepherd of Ezekiel 34 and of the shepherd as, as the leader of Israel. And note, it means that the leaders of Israel were failing to do their job, and we're going to make note of the leaders of Israel in the next passage. We're not actually done at the end of chapter 10, chapter 8, verse 10, but we'll pick it back up. But all right, so here we go. What are some of the questions we have after we read the first 10 verses of Mark 8? Well, in Jesus himself calls attention to the fact that it's late in the day. Yes. And Earlier, the disciples are the ones that did that. Very good. Very Yes. Initially in chapter six, the disciples, hey, Jesus is late. You got to send him home. In chapter eight, Jesus is like, hey, guys, it's late. What do you think? It was interesting that there was more food, but less people and less um, picked yeah. up afterwards. Yes. What does that, what question does that raise? So it's an interesting observation, but it also raises another question, at least for me, it does knows where I'm what I'm thinking that's, that's kind of hard to do because I don't even know what I'm thinking half the time my wife like 32 years I have no idea where this guy's at it raises the question why are you telling us about this miracle if the point of the miracle is he can multiply bread to feed the multitudes we already got that figured out and this miracle is not actually as impressive because he did it with five loaves and he fed 5,000 and now he's got seven loaves and he only feeds 4,000. I mean, maybe seven loaves for 10,000. That'd be, a, Hey, okay. Whoa. He can even, I thought, his, I thought his limit was five loaves and 5,000. Clearly you can do seven loaves and like 10,000. No. What's the point? I know. What's the point of the miracle of, of telling us this miracle again, a second time while well, he did it twice. I know. But if the point is to say, Jesus is the one who provides the bread and he can multiply bread from heaven that we already got that with the first account. 
Why the second account, especially when the second account isn't actually as impressive? Because it's for the Gentiles. Yeah, very good, Gracie. True. So that's why he's telling it the second time, Gracie. Yeah, okay, I very good. I would say so. Yeah, that's correct. I was just going to say that, you know, even though he did this miracle the first time, the disciples didn't believe that he could make bread because they said exactly the same again. Like, well, where are we going to get something to eat? Oh, uh, I think yeah. that's another question the text raises. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, that was my point. It's like, where can someone get enough bread in this desolate place? And they'd already seen him do it before, but they didn't trust. It's like this lack of belief and not trusting that he can do well, it. Again. Yeah, I'm looking at, at chapter eight, verse four, going, what are you talking? Dudes, do you, do you not? Like, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? It's like, hello? He just fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. What are you talking about? Where are we going to get? The question doesn't make any sense at all. I just think the question is like, what are you talking about? Because we know, remember, we're the omniscient reader though, right? We, we get the perspective of, uh, hey, you know, so maybe this happened two years ago and they forgot. Well, that, all right, pause. But the fact that Mark, and again, this is an illustration of Mark raising a question or, or showing the disciples in a light that, doesn't portray them very positively because either you know, either their answer is they're lacking faith or they don't remember, which like, how do you not remember that? You had to pick up all the extra bread. You're like, you're picking up the bread going, dang it, why did he make extra bread? We didn't, we wouldn't have to pick all this stuff up if you didn't make extra. So you, you got to remember the event. Yeah, uh, uh, very good. Where would, or would verse 15 fit in this discussion anywhere? In chapter eight? And chapter eight, yeah. Yeah, don't go there yet. We haven't gone that far. You're cheating if you read ahead. Only students who cheat are the ones who read ahead. Oh. Yeah, it's like looking at the next question to figure out how to answer the previous one. That's how I got through school. Don't tell anybody. You, uh, okay, yeah, very good. You keep calling me that all the time. I know, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I trained you well, right? I trained you too well. Sorry. So we, here, here's some of the things that we have, to, we have to figure out what's going on. Why does Jesus say you give them something to eat in chapter six? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, secondly, why does he make extra food? Uh, why does Mark tell us that he made extra food? The fact that he tells us only raises the question, why did he do it? And why does Mark tell us in both cases how much extra food he made? 12 baskets in one passage, seven baskets in another passage. And I'm like, uh, what's going on? Now, with those questions un unanswered, why did he say you give them something to eat? Well, we can ask another question too. You know, why did the disciples say, well, we're going to get enough food? It's like, hello. Uh, why did he make extra food? Why does Mark tell us? And why does he tell us how much that they, how much he made? All right. So now let's continue reading. Mark chapter eight, verse eleven. I'll read it. It says the Pharisees came out, and so it sounds like a totally different topic. But we were clued in by the fact that the shepherds of Israel were the leaders of Israel. So maybe we're not on another topic. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. What's the question that you're asking now? Are you really the Messiah? Are they just putting him to test, you mean? Oh, oh, yeah. Right. They're asking him for a sign. Yeah. The, the very next verse, after Mark just told us that he multiplied bread and fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. Do you need a sign? Are you serious? <laughs> I think the placing of verse 11, right after the story in verses 8, 1 through 10, Clearly, his miracle of feeding the multitude, which he did twice now, and maybe they only knew of once, 
wasn't good enough. All right. I think that's one of the questions. That, I, I'd like to know why the Pharisees even came out there. Why did, yeah, good question. Them? Well, we, we're told 2.23, it says uh, they were disciples were walking through the, uh, through the grain fields and the Pharisees were saying to them, hey, you're doing what's not lawful. It's like, well, what are you doing in the grain fields? Uh, we're spying on you. The question actually is interesting because Pharisees don't reside in Galilee. If he's up in Galilee, what are the Pharisees even doing there? And yeah. the only answer can be they're there to spy on him. They've heard down in Jerusalem what's going on, and they sent an envoy of people up to, to Galilee to find out, hey, what's really the, the true story up here? So uh, good good question there. All right, so verse 12, sighing deeply. That's my translation, Mark uh, 12. Uh, not my translation, but the New American Standard. Uh, in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Verse 14. Somebody want to read verses 14 through 17, but don't read 18. That'd be cheating. <laughs> 14 through 17. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Thanks. Are your yeah, hearts... No, no, hard don't, don't go to verse 18, Carol. That's <laughs> cheating. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you, though. Now, we're, we, now we know that the story of the Pharisees is related because he says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And leaven is yeast, right? So leaven... Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. So we know that that story with the Pharisees has something to do with what's going on here. Secondly, he says, and the leaven of Herod. And we're like, what does Herod have to do with anything? Which means our suspicion that maybe Herod had a banquet. Jesus has a banquet. That seems to be legit. The banquet of Jesus is being contrasted with the banquet of Herod. Okay, interesting enough. But yeah, 14 doesn't make any sense. It contradicts itself in the middle. And the two parts of the sentence are contradictions. Everybody see what I'm, what I'm getting at? Mm -hmm. They forgot to take bread. Mm -hmm. They didn't have more than one loaf. Well, did they or did they not? If they forgot to take bread, then they, they ain't got no bread. Okay. But the very next statement is they had a loaf. Well, they had one mm -hmm. loaf. So do they have bread or not? <laughs> and, and by the way, look what it says. Verse 17, uh, verse 16, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. So apparently they have no bread. Well, then what do you mean you got a loaf? Verse 17, Jesus says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Wait a minute, it says in verse uh, 14, they have a loaf. Does anybody know the answer to that? I'll let you tell the answer. Is it the kind of bread they've got? Uh, no, 11 no. Versus 11, no. No, okay. a good try, All right, good try. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the loaf of bread. They had a loaf no. of bread in the boat, didn't they? It was oh. Jesus. They actually took no bread. And that's why they're discussing the fact that they had no bread. But Mark's insertion that they had, they did have one loaf. But by the way, remember Mark's readers already know these stories. And so Mark's writing to an audience that, that he's reminding them of things that happened. And he's putting this in a literary form to accent meaning but his audience already has a certain understanding of things. And so remember chapter one, 
but his readers already know that story. So his readers know what's going on. And, I'm, and by the way, we're going to get confirmation that his readers totally know what's going on. All the questions that we're asking that were like, uh, what's the answer? His audience actually knew the answers to these questions. So they knew, oh, it's Jesus. But for us, we're like, yeah, hey, I think it's Jesus. I'm not sure. Yeah, actually, it's Jesus. Now, the word leaven, by the way, in verse 15, is a common metaphor, figure of speech, for unrighteousness or evil deeds. A little uh, leaven leavens the whole batch of dough, you may have heard Paul will say it, uh, meaning a little bit of evil influence will corrupt the whole thing. You know, it's one of these things of like pastoral responsibility. You know, you got to be careful if you let that evil into the congregation here and you don't deal with it. Sometimes you have to address, do we deal with it or do we not deal with it? And sometimes it's wise to not deal with it. But sometimes like, yeah, but if I don't deal with it, it's actually going to spread because a little inf evil influence will corrupt the whole batch and the whole congregation. And it's going to affect us all. You have to address when you need to deal with 11, when you don't need to deal with 11. The point, though, is, look, the Pharisees and Herod, they ain't got very good leaven. Ah, okay. Now, end of verse 17. Do you not yet see or understand? Ah, Jesus is telling a parable. When he asks, do you understand? It's in relationship to parables. Now, the gospel of Mark doesn't frame it that way, but the gospel of Matthew does. In Matthew 13, Jesus, the word understand is the same word that's used here. And in Matthew 13, it's associated with parables. Why do you teach in parables? Jesus has asked in Matthew 13. I think it's verse 13. Why do you teach in parables? And it's like, so that those who don't see won't ever understand. If they have eyes to see and ears to hear, they'll understand. But if they don't, they won't. Which likely means, just getting off that side note for just a second, it likely means the more you understand, the more accountable you are. And if you don't want to understand, if you don't want to follow me, then I'm not going to let you be accountable. I'm, just, I'm going to help you out by giving you less information to be accountable for. There's probably also some measure of, if they understand exactly what he's saying, they're going to kill him. That probably is going on also. But nonetheless, do you not yet see or understand is our clue that there's a parable involved. Now, I don't mean to say that these stories of feeding the multitudes are, are parables. No, they're, Mark's telling them as true stories. I mean, a parable is a story that Jesus tells to illustrate a bigger point. But Mark is telling these stories not in Jesus's mouth. Jesus doesn't go, hey, one time, a whole motu was hungry, and I, that he doesn't do that. Mark is telling us this as a story, which we assume actually happened, which raises the question the second time, why did they ask where we're going to get any bread from? You've already seen me do this one. But nonetheless, we'll have to leave that one hanging. So do you not yet see or understand? And the point of that is the ones who see and the ones who understand are the ones who have had their eyes opened and are coming to Jesus. Now, remember that phrase, their eyes are opened and they're coming to Jesus for the answer. The ones who have been blinded by Satan, right? Mark 4, he's the, the bird snatched the seed away. Satan's deceived them already. They don't have eyes to see or understand. Meaning you guys should get this by now. You guys have eyes to see, but apparently you don't. So let's keep reading. Now he quotes Isaiah 6, which I won't get into now because it's really instrumental to what I just said though. And he says in verse 18, having eyes, do you not yet see? Having ears, do you not yet hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? Ah, see, I knew it was important. 
we knew that Mark wanted us to ask that question for some, why'd you make extra bread? And the fact that it's important is confirmed for us by the fact that Jesus is bringing it back up. So the disciples answer him and say, 12, verse 19, that's verse 19, verse 20. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And we're like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, I don't get it. Help me out. But Mark is done. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him. Wait a minute. What's going Tell us the answer, Mark. So here's the deal. We know that the picking up of, of extra bread was important. Apparently the number of fish was important also. Or I'm sorry, the number of loaves of bread, five loaves and seven loaves. Because like how many loaves? Okay, great number of baskets of broken pieces they pick up was also important seven seven and twelve and if we do a little geography and you're just gonna have to trust me on this because it takes a little while to explain this but uh, gracie noted it in mark chapter six he's on the jewish side of the lake remember the galilee side that we pointed out a few weeks ago mm -hmm. the galilee side is, is mark six he fed israel he fed the jewish people and they picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and 12 Anybody remember? No. Or what's the number 12 often symbolized in the Bible, Old and New Testaments? The 12 tribes. And in the New Testament, the 12 apostles. Very good. It symbolizes the people of God. It's the number for God's people. 12 times 12 is 144. 144,000 is this large number of people con constituting the people of God. So it symbolizes the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. So I fed Israel and you've picked up enough baskets to do, to do what? Ah, I'm going to ask that in a second. The Mark 8 episode, he's on the Golanitis side of the lake, the Gentile side of the lake. He's on the Gentile side of the lake. And he had seven loaves of bread and he feeds 4,000 and they pick up seven baskets. Five loaves to feed Israel. Five is not a significant number. The only thing that we can associate it with is the five books of Moses. But the number five is not consistently used as a symbolic number with any real deep meaning. If it's used here, this is the, as far as I can recall, this is like the only time it's actually ever used. If it's used, maybe Jesus talking to the, to the rich young ruler and he mentions five of the commandments. I think it is five. So maybe five there. Again, it refers to Moses. Seven is the number for perfection. Everybody else. So he feeds the nations with seven loaves of bread. Okay, that makes sense. And he picked, they pick up seven baskets of bread. Okay, there's enough food now to feed the nations. What was the question we had at the beginning of this study? At the beginning of chapter six, like, uh, why would Jesus ask them this or say to them this? You feed them. You feed them. How are they going to feed them? You just picked up 12 baskets of bread. You got enough bread to feed Israel. You just picked up seven baskets of bread. You got enough bread to feed the nations. But that bread's going to go stale. But you don't need that bread. You need Jesus. Jesus. Bread of life. We don't have any bread in the boat. Are you guys? No, I'm the bread. Do you not yet see or understand? And again, Mark's readers must know this because he doesn't answer the question. You can keep reading the rest. You can read on ahead if you want now because it ain't cheating anymore. Because there's nothing in the rest of the gospel that answers the question. We have to figure this out on our own. But we know that we're supposed to do this. Or, or so remember, like the question earlier was, was there any significance on the breaking of bread? Well, Mark never tells us that. So I probably won't read that in. 
But the fact that he told us about the extra bread and how many baskets there were, and now that Jesus brings it up, yeah, we were supposed, that's important. And the fact that he says, do you not yet see or understand, which we know was Jesus's way of referring to a parable, says that there's some symbolic significance beyond this. And the significance is 12 and 7, there's enough bread to feed Israel, has enough bread to feed the nations. In other words, the disciples were supposed, and remember this passage in Mark 6 followed the disciples being sent out and then coming back and reporting to Jesus. Okay, great. You guys went out, you did ministry. Thanks. I, I appreciate here what you've done. I need to teach you something else. I need to teach you how to feed the people. So you feed them. Oh, we don't know how to do that. Well, let me show you. All you need is Jesus. And you can feed the people. Now, there's another story, however, that follows. And that story is actually about a blind man. And you're like, well, what does this have to do with anything? Everything. He hasn't actually changed topics. Look what happens. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. Bethsaida, remember, is actually Peter's home. It's right on the other side of, of Golanitis on the border. It's in Golanitis. And they brought them a blind man and entreating him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. After spitting on his eyes, laying his hands upon him, he said, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men. For I'm seeing them like trees walking about. Then he laid his hands upon his eyes again. And he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent them to his home saying, don't even enter the village. Okay, now we got some more questions again, right? Why do you only partially heal the guy? If you can feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread, you can heal this man on one touch. Question that is asked here is, why did you only do the miracle like halfway? Can, can you not heal the guy fully on one touch? You got to touch twice. And the answer is, do you not yet see or understand? Mm -hmm. The miracle of healing a blind man follows him asking the disciples, do you not see? Do the disciples see or not? Well, a little bit. The blind man's answer is a little bit. Okay, let me touch your eyes again. And now do you see? Yeah, I can see everything clearly. And what happens next? Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. Do they see clearly or not? Now they do. Yeah. When they were on the boat and they forgot to take bread, they didn't see very clearly at all. Now they see clearly. So the reason why he heals the man, uh, the blind person in stages is not because he's incompetent or not quite competent enough, but because it illustrates for Mark the fact that the disciples are going through a process of, oh, I get it. Oh, now I get it. Oh, now I really get it. And by the way, so that's the same process that we all go through, huh? I get it better today than I did last week or last month or last year. The statement, Jesus is Lord, do you get it? Well, a little bit. I see men, they look like trees. Hold on, let me show you a little bit more. Oh, now I get it more clearly. And by the way, did Peter get it perfectly clear? No, because when Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, Peter tries to rebuke him. 
Remember, we talked about that, I think, last week. So this, and now, by the way, chapter seven just adds all kinds of awesome stuff to this whole point, but we don't have any time to go there. So I'm, I'm gonna, sorry to go listen to the podcast. So does that make sense? Is that, I think that's fun. And yeah, and, yeah any, any comments or questions here? Yeah. Question. Um, they might, I don't know if it's off topic, but I have a, a client who's really curious and is he doesn't get it, doesn't get it. And so how, how, how do you hold, I mean, what do you do about that? I mean, I know he wants to get it, but he just doesn't get it, doesn't get it. And I'm, I'm semi-getting it and I don't get it. So both of us sitting there going, I don't know, I don't know, what do you do? I mean, what would you, what would you, how would you speak to somebody like that? I would encourage them with, no one gets it fully. It's going to take time. So let's go on this journey together because community is a great way to do a journey. And that's just, that's what evangelism I think actually is, is going on a journey with them and having them join your journey and you joining their journey. I think that's beautiful. And then I would say, okay, what are the things that are troubling you the most? And let's see if we can't figure those out. And then begin to process and say, okay, this is the, this is the issue. Where do I go to help find that answer? And it might be doing a better study of the Bible yourself, or it might be going to a resource or a podcast or a book or an article, or come to someone like myself or some other teachers that, you know, and go, Hey, we're struggling on this one. Help us understand this one. Okay, great. And just being on that journey to get, I think being vulnerable and open and candid is actually really, really positive because people go, okay, I'm not afraid to be vulnerable now either because Helen's being vulnerable because she doesn't get it either. And we're and like, she's like way ahead of me. I, I think that's really great. So does that help? I would yeah. add that you can pray. Yeah, yeah, ask, thanks, John. Ask, ask God for, to help give you clarity. That will also build your relationship and vulnerability together and mm -hmm. faith. You know, yeah. ask God for clarity when I can't understand something or don't understand why I'm going through something, you know, I ask God for, give me eyes to see. <laughs> you know, so, by the way, John gives the spiritual answer and I give the academic answer. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you taught me well. No, 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 not at all, John. That's but not well right enough because I still don't get it either. Yeah, okay, <laughs> okay. What don't you get in terms of something in tonight's lesson that you don't get that we need to kind of. No, uh, well, one question, you know, uh, just how none of us fully get it the first time. Right. But right. I also maybe one of the bigger questions is, Lord, why do you got to teach in these parables? Why didn't you just tell me, you know, <laughs> yeah, why yeah, do you yeah. got to make it so hard to understand? And if that's what Mark really wanted us to know, why didn't he just tell us that? Ah, I, I was going to comment on this. For me, some of you know my background a little bit. I grew up in a fundamentalist church and the fundamentalist Baptist church. And, you know, and, and the fundamentalist world is there's right, there's wrong, this is true, that's false. And, and which, okay, I'm good with that a little bit, but be careful a little bit. And I have actually I have a master's degree in philosophy and apologetics. And so, hey, here's all the five reasons why we know that God exists based on the science and philosophy, da da da. Here's how we know that Bible's legitimate from God. Here's how we know this. That's how we know that. That was my training. And over time, I began to realize, okay, wait a minute, actually, the world's not that simple. Actually, we have simple answers, you know, a little bit more convoluted, a little bit more difficult, a little, a little sketchy, a little more sketchy here, a little sketchy. There. And for me, 
what I've come to really embrace now is the beauty of the scriptures, the beauty of the story, how from Genesis through Revelation, from garden to garden, this one story is woven over a course of several thousand years by different authors, and, and it all folds in this one beautiful story of God dwelling among his people. And it's a love story of God <laughs> loving his people so much that he uh, wants to be in relationship with him and he dies to do that. And uh, how it's the, the anti-power story or how power done differently because it's power by sacrifice and surrender. That's just beautiful. And it makes sense of the world because we know that the kingdoms of the world, they do things by power and military might and stepping on the other guy or the little guy. And we know that just causes injustice and corruption. And so the biblical story and that beautiful story, and then you look at things like this and you're like, oh my gosh, the way this is woven together and the beauty and the depth and the richness of this. And it just makes me hungry to know more and to go farther and to go, okay, what else is in there that I never saw in study school classes? <laughs> and, you know, right. So I find the beauty and the depth and the richness of this. And so part of the answer to your question, John, would be that's what shows its beauty, the literary beauty of it. And that means that we shouldn't just go and go, okay, today's Sunday school lesson is on this passage. And next week we'll talk about another passage as, as if it has nothing to do with each other. We look for these literary connections because they're there and they're intended. And Mark wrote with sandwiches and telling this and then inter so that's the beauty. And it's just a beautiful literary masterpiece that was would have been really respected in the ancient world. Wow, the way you crafted the story actually has legitimacy to it. It's not some simplistic thing. So I think in the ancient world, it carries a lot more weight. And I think for me, it carries a lot of weight because it shows, wow, the richness of these stories. Wow, this is awesome. And you start seeing these things and it's awesome. Now, you got to be careful because people will run with these and find hidden codes and things like that. And we're like, no, we're not finding these special secret codes that can only be decoded with a special ring that you bought in the box of ja Cracker Jacks. Um, <laughs> but, right, and so uh, again, another illusion that Karunakar might know what, not know what a Cracker Jack box is, but uh, nonetheless, you get the idea uh, that no, or send in $5 and I'll give you a special hanky that I've prayed over that will, that when you place it over your Bible, magically the, the secret words will come through and shine through, but you gotta send me $5 before I send you the secret hanky, the prayer hanky. So no, there are things that the author clearly intended that his readers would have figured out that we're just kind of cluing in later on. So, so that are, is anybody something else? that I, I am constantly forgetting when I'm reading I, uh, is the beauty of the prose or the beauty of the text. Yeah. And the, I, I'm always trying so hard to understand the, hmm. you know, the literal meaning uh, and sometimes forget, yeah. often forget to look deeper or maybe more shallow than right. trying to trying to understand it yeah and one other note on that sorry that our culture might not accept that as much you know our culture is a truth culture <clears throat> i want to know right and wrong and truth and and truth i want to deduce this and therefore it's it must be true um, to say something is beautiful is more subjective and so beauty is always there's a measure of subjectivity with it but in Islamic cultures, beauty, their number one argument as to why the Quran is from God is its beauty. So all of a sudden say, well, you, hey, I got another text that's actually really beautiful too. And maybe you should look at this one and, and share the stories with them. And, and because beauty is actually something that they accept as a means of determining truth. Mm. So I was, I was just thinking from a pragmatic point of view that Jesus telling stories, parables, or whatever, yeah. is a lot less dangerous for him to teach than it would be just to come right out and tell you. 
That's uh, correct. what he wanted to tell you. It allowed him to teach in the open. Yeah, very good. A lot point. easier. Because the meaning of it is is hidden. Study on this topic of what is the gospel. Obviously, we haven't fully answered the question because there's other aspects to it. But if we keep our focus on Jesus as Lord, then we begin to realize, okay, you know what? You can believe Jesus is Lord. Allow me to say things you might not like to hear sometimes. You can say Jesus is Lord and believe that and believe in abortion. You can. I know people who do. You can say Jesus is Lord and believe that and be a Republican or a Democrat. Those things aren't gospel. They're not not essential for the follow. Hey, follow me. Okay. And to follow him, you must be of this political persuasion. No, you actually, because by the way, there are communists that are Christians too. They're, they're like all over Russia and other. Oh yeah. Wait a second. So we have to be careful about finding the wrong battle. Sometimes we're finding them in the wrong way. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.